Hi, my name is Roland Vive, and I'd like to thank you for listening to my podcast today. So today's topic will be the what I call the guru mentality. Um, I've spent literally zero minutes of my life on Facebook, but that doesn't mean I don't use social media. I do spend some time on Twitter and more recently a lot of time on LinkedIn. And one of the things I've noticed, I mean, LinkedIn is a wonderful platform. It's, it helps you, depending on who you follow, it helps you keep informed of what's happening uh, in the business community in Ottawa. It helps you keep in touch with people who are in your industry and some of the interesting information that comes out of that. And, you know, there are curated news feeds I find to be quite interesting. So um, while it seems that I, you know, I might be picking on LinkedIn for the next few minutes, I just want to start off by saying that I am a fan. But as I've taken more of a deep dive and spent more time on the platform, I've kind of realized that we live in a world now where everyone is an expert. Everyone is a guru. They have this level of expertise and advice that um, they keep bombarding you with. And, um, you know, it's kind of, I find it to be interesting because um, I've been given advice by people who are gurus and experts in the accounting world. And it gave me pause to think that perhaps, you know, all of these ideas floating out there may not be necessarily the greatest ideas. Certainly, um, you know, there are things that you can you know, learn from these platforms and, and incorporate into your business. And, uh, you know, they can be helpful. But I guess what I'm saying here is don't always take for gold what you hear out there and, and at least apply some sort of critical thinking to the advice of these so-called experts. Um, so I'm going to talk about three topics. Um, they, they would have application to, you know, to many different types of businesses. I think the, the examples that I use are going to be more accounting and the accounting world specific, but I think some of the messaging in terms of, um, you know, don't believe everything that you hear out there would apply to, to different industries. Although, like I said, I'm going to be using examples that are more specific to the tax and accounting world. So the first thing I want to talk about is outsourcing. Um, you know, I've been told many times, I've attended some, some um, accounting seminars, um, and I've actually seen this, this thinking on LinkedIn that basically says, you know, if you want to be successful and truly profitable in the accounting world, you need to outsource. You need to look at the work you do and outsource the stuff which brings little value. It's necessary, but it brings little value and is what be considered to be low margin work. So, you know, in a typical example, if I look at our practice, that might be it might involve uh, outsourcing the preparation of personal tax returns. I've been contacted from organizations and companies offshore. So, you know, the, the, the few that I've been uh, contacted by are from India. And basically their, their value proposition is don't bother wasting your time doing personal tax returns. We know it's a necessary evil for a practice when you're doing tax and accounting. Um, but, you know, use us, um, send us all your data, and we'll prepare the tax returns. And because of the, the time difference, at the end of the day, you send off your, your information. And when you wake up in the morning, the tax elves have done their work and all your tax returns are completed. And it's generally done, uh, at a, you know, what they say is a high quality. I mean, there's, there are uh, people living in India who are highly trained in Canadian tax and U.S. tax. So they've got the level of expertise. And, you know, that, that's kind of how this, this model is supposed to work. You send stuff off, it gets done at a lower cost, and you can do it yourself. 
and the you know apparently the quality and timing of it is such that it's win-win for everybody so you know what what could possibly go wrong with that well i mean where do you start i mean the first thing is there's a matter of security um you know how do you get your client's personal tax information uh, to deliver to some organization in a different country that's 12, 12 hours away. Um, and how do you do it securely? So, you know, you have to look at whether or not there are secure channels to transmit that information. And even if there are secure channels on the transmission part, um, how is it handled on the other side? I mean, what is, when you do personal tax returns, you see absolutely everything about a person's life. You know, their name, their date of birth, their social insurance number, how much money they make, their direct deposit information, and by the way, here's all of the medical expenses they've incurred and all the charities they donate to. So, you know, that's really, really intimate information that we have. So although the transmission channel might be good, um, you know, you can't really know for sure how it's being handled on the other side. But but that's, you know, I mean, for me, that would be a huge concern, but it's also um, just one of the problems that I think outsourcing brings. So if I were to talk to my peers, um, people who run other accounting firms in Ottawa, pretty much anywhere in the country, or for that matter, any other business owner, regardless of what you do, had you asked them, you know, what is one of their biggest problems that they deal with on a day-to-day basis? What are some of the more strategic limitations for them growing their business? And the answer is always going to be the same. I can't find enough good people. Um, and it's particularly in the tax and accounting world, everybody is looking for, you know, great talent and outsourcing, I think is part of that problem. Uh, although, you know, you're technically only outsourcing the really low level work. I think what ends up happening invariably is that you're outsourcing work, which although to you, it might be low level and it might, might be low margin, but it's actually really interesting work for people who are starting off in their career. Um, You know, if you talk to any tax practitioner who uh, has been quite successful and has has done well for themselves, he or she has literally done thousands and thousands of tax returns over the course of their career. Some of them easy, some of them exceedingly difficult. Um, But, you know, that is kind of a starting building block. You can't be a good tax practitioner. I'm going to use that as an example. You can't be a good tax practitioner if you haven't done tax returns. And not 10 or 20, but, you know, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000. And, you know, so I think on, on one level, you might be saving some money. And even if you were to address the security concerns, you're actually preventing the next generation of professionals from from developing properly. And, you know, even though, again, that might be low-level work initially, um, people who prepare tax returns eventually review tax returns. And those who review tax returns eventually get involved in more high-level planning, tax planning, estate planning. So these are all building blocks. So if you, you know, you might outsource all your tax returns, but then there's no one to review them for the quality and and that that error control. And, you know, you have no one to blame but yourself that you don't have anybody in your firm who does a good job of reviewing tax returns because, you know, they've never had the chance to prepare them. And it's just, it's just this cascading effect. So I think, um, you know, outsourcing is is, although it might lead to short-term profits, and it might help you with your short-term staffing problems, right? You don't have enough people to to actually prepare tax returns in your in your firm. 
but so, you know, I'm going to plug the hole, but I think that's kind of a lazy person's approach to solving this problem. I think what you need to do is you need to go out there. You need to hire young accountants. You need to invest the time to train them, get them, get their skills up and, and bring that and bring and retain that expertise in house. Because once it goes offshore, um, you know, you're, you're never going to get that back and you end up with an entire gap in, in your firm where just those skills just don't exist anymore. And, um, you know, I just don't think those who are advocating outsourcing, uh, as one of these, you got to do these, do this. Um, I don't, those who, who have that, that mentality, I just don't think they're thinking about the, the big picture. And I think it's, it's really a short-term focus and, and a lazy solution to a problem. And then, you know, final point on that, I don't want to beat it up too much, but, um, you know, accountants are not cheap. Um, their clients pay good money to have tax work done and you're paying for their expertise. And I don't know, you know, when you sit across the table from a client discussing their tax position and the returns that we just filed and, and kind of doing some big planning that they would be overly happy to know that, uh, their tax returns were done overseas in an organization that, um, you've never met and you don't know about. So I think, um, again, just kind of client perception, if that was to get out, I don't think it would be very well received. I certainly know it wouldn't be well received by my clients and I wouldn't blame them. The other, the other thing I want to talk about, um, is the idea of, of needing to be in the cloud. Um, the, you know, the, the general thinking out there is that, you know, you don't bother maintaining your own server. Um, you need to just kind of have everything in the cloud and use, you know, the, the infrastructure of big organizations and, and let them run, run things for you. Um, and that applies to, uh, to software as well. Just, you know, don't bother, just pay a monthly subscription. Everything will be in the cloud and, um, you can focus on just doing the work that you do. Being in the cloud, you know, again, if I use the, the tax and accounting world context, um, it, it makes sense in some regards. Um, tax software is very complex. It, you know, has many updates throughout the year as leg legislation changes. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's an organic piece of software. So it's constantly changing, uh, during tax season, for example, you know, it's not unusual to get four or five updates and sometimes more in a very short period of time. And these are pretty critical updates. So, um, you know, you may or may not have a good IT group. I have a very good IT group, but you know, they don't instantly install things. Um, so if you run some of your, your software in the cloud, you're guaranteed that, you know, it's always up to date because essentially run by the software manufacturer, they produce the software and they host the, host the applications in the cloud on their server. So, you know, it's always up to date. The other thing is, you know, that, you know, there are backups, you're relying on their infrastructure so that, you know, if something was to go wrong in your office, you know, all of the, the data is resident in the cloud and you don't have to worry about it. And it allows you uh, to work remotely. Um, if you happen to work offsite or work from home or be lucky enough to go to, you know, go down south during the winter and you happen to be a tax practitioner, then you can work remotely from wherever you happen to be if your applications are in the cloud. So I see the benefits of that. I mean, I totally understand the value proposition of it. And in some cases, it's actually cheaper than, you know, buying and maintaining your own servers. So, you know, what's not to love about that? Well, um, you know, this is a specific example of something that happened 
um, just a few months ago, actually, um, one of the big U.S. tax software companies, in fact, they're a global company, they essentially, they're a dominant player in the tax software, where you actually, the world where you, you prepare your tax returns. And they, they, they developed a software, and it's quite good. And they've pushed most of their clients into the cloud. So you don't run the program from your desktop, you run it from their servers. And a couple of months ago, they went dark. So they noticed some irregularities on their server. And because of the sensitivity of the data that they, they host, they shut down their servers. They shut down absolutely everything. They shut it down for four days. And nobody really knew what was going on other than the odd press release saying, you know, we noticed noticed some irregularities in our software and something that was happening on one of our servers. So out of an abundance of caution, we're shutting everything down. So that kind of leads you to, you know, it, it put a lot of CPA firms, particularly in the U.S., in a tough position because now suddenly you have, you know, 20, 30, 100 people who really can't do anything for four days. And depending on what time of the year that is, that might be absolutely horrific um, if it's approaching a deadline. So I guess, I mean, that's really what got me thinking is that, you know, despite the benefits of the cloud, uh, to some extent, you are reliant on the uptime of the people who are hosting you. Um, you would hope, given the size of the, the companies, and these are billion dollar companies in some instances, that they have the infrastructure and um, all of the all of the things that you can't afford to have, that they have those procedures in place, and that uptime is 100%, and that security is 100%. And we just, we just don't live in that world. I don't know if we'll ever live in that world. I'm not an IT security person, but it seems that every week, there's a massive data breach. And I'm not saying there was a data breach in this instance, but stuff happens in the cloud. And if you put all of your mission critical applications in the cloud, you are taking what is a vital part of your organization and you're removing it from your control. And for me, that's something that, uh, I mean, we don't have a lot of cho a choice sometimes, right? You I mean, if you, you subscribe to certain pieces of software or certain applications and they're only in the cloud, then you have no choice. But you know, the cloud is not the be all and end all. And I think, you know, there's an obligation on the, on the part of software providers and anybody who's operating in the cloud to actually have infrastructure. It's a commitment to your people that, um, you, you know, to your customers rather, that they need to, you know, they need to take that data seriously and the uptime seriously. So, you know, I, I do, I do resist, um, I would resist trying to put mission critical applications in the cloud simply because I have more faith in myself and my IT people maintaining our infrastructure than I would uh, someone else given some of these circumstances. Now, I mean, it's not to say using ourselves as an example. It's not a, to say that we're not in the cloud. I mean, we have a, a, a server that's resident in our office. Everything's encrypted. The data is encrypted and it's backed up in the cloud. So even if somebody was to in intercept that, it's it's useless to them. So there is, you know, there is offsite backups that we've got. Um, but, you know, I, w I would definitely be nervous about putting things that are make or break for the firm in the cloud because um, I just don't think we're yet, if ever, at the stage where you can guarantee that that's, that's, it's going to be up and running when you need it, despite the obvious benefits of doing so. And finally, um, my last topic is, and this is an interesting one, I, I was, it's talking about you know, the billing models for accounting firms. And 
this the genesis of this i was again on linkedin and i was um contacted by someone who is an expert in the accounting world and they had written a book and they promised me that if i you know they've got the magic sauce and they will help me be successful and help my firm reach the next level and you know, be wildly successful and wonderful in all the things that we're not currently doing um and i thanked them very much i said i appreciate this but you know i think we're doing all right um and he offered to send me a book and the you know the book was about the all the wonderful things that sorry let me rephrase it the book was about essentially if you, here's what you got to do if you want to be successful in the accounting world so um he sent me a copy and um you know it was arrived in the mail just as promised and wonderful inscription on the inside and i read the book and i really enjoyed reading it um but it was advice again which fell into that category of if you're not doing this you're crazy and if you're not doing this you're a dinosaur and one of the things they talked about was the accounting firm billing model and that really again it really got me thinking because there's no there's no right or wrong in this world so how do accounting firms work well the traditional model and this this also includes law firms and essentially any firm professional services firm but but you know lawyers and accountants generally follow this model which is the chargeable hour so we're like glorified taxis and you know when you work on a particular engagement you put the timer on and when you're done working on that engagement you turn the timer off and you looked at how much time you spent on that and you know the the bill that it, the client pays for at the end of the process is dependent on how much time people spend on the engagement so essentially time is our product that's what we sell and the chargeable hour is how we manage that and how we measure that so the that and it's been like that since the beginning of time so newer billing models are starting to emerge and that's kind of you know more on the the value billing so it doesn't matter how much you spend how much time you spend on something the question is you should be billing what it's worth um and you know again the other part of that is if you take the the example of a lawyer because i'll pick on lawyers right now um if you can do something in an hour and charge a client $500 for it or because you're really fast and really good at it or you're actually not very fast at it and it takes you 10 hours and you send the client a bill for $5000 and either way assuming the client pays for it why would you do something in 1 hour and get paid 500 when you can take 10 hours to do it so the the thinking being that the chargeable hour model disincents you to be effective and efficient um because you know regardless of how good or quick you are at something the more the longer it takes the more you make and the assumption there of course is that the client's going to pay for that um so the value model value billing model basically says ignore how long it takes you just ditch time sheets forget about recording your time never you know get and that's a burden the account one of the things that accountants hate uh when you're in public accounting is tracking your time the time sheet is really important so ditch the time sheet and do the work for the client and you bill them what it's worth not how long it took you and you know the chargeable hour is now uh, gone out the door and never to be you don't mention that word ever again so you know there there's some there's some element of of truth to that um but you know on one level it it doesn't happen all the time but you know there are instances where you can meet a client and they've got a big problem 
and you might be able to save them, let's say, $100,000 for uh, after a one or two hour consultation. Like I'm telling you, it doesn't happen all the time, but these things do happen. So if you spend an hour of time, two hours, let's say two hours, um, and you save someone $100,000 and you give them a bill for 20K um, because, hey, you know, I saved you 100,000 and I'm only charging you 20, but they know it only took you two hours. Um, my clients are sophisticated, they're smart people, and they don't mind paying for things, but they certainly would not pay a $20,000 bill for uh, something that only took me one or two hours to do. So, you know, value billing um, makes sense in some instances, but, you know, majority of the time it's not going to work out like it does on paper. And, and the other thing about, you know, tracking chargeable hours, um, if I kind of look at how we do things internally here, it's a great way to measure people's performance. Now, we don't use chargeable hours um, in, in a negative way. I mean, we, we measure... Take the example of a younger account, somebody starting out in their career. Um, if you were to ditch the timesheets and just simply say, okay, here's a job, go do it, and you don't really you know, know how much time they're spending on things, then you really don't know how they're doing. With By tracking chargeable hours, I think it's quite important because you can see where people are, are spinning their wheels. It helps you. It's a tool for us to help understand how... Uh, some particularly or some of our more junior staff are doing on engagement. So if something should take eight hours and someone spent 24 hours doing it, uh, it may be more complicated than thought. But in a lot of instances, that person, you know, might be just in a little bit more over their head than uh, than they thought they would be. And, you know, by by tracking chargeable hours like that, you can you can you can see how people are performing and find out where they're they're struggling. Um, and the other thing is it does really uh, depending on the nature of your practice, I mean, the type of work that we do here is we do have some fairly big engagements where we'll do, you know, corporate, uh, we'll do financial statements, we'll do tax returns for clients, and those are generally done after their year end. But, uh, and, and the amount of time that is invested in those is pretty easy to judge. But a lot of times when you become a trusted advisor to your clients, um, you're constantly involved in various decisions with them, helping them make strategic decisions, whether it's to acquire a building or whatever it happens to be, expand into new markets. So if you're just, you know, doing the bread, or, bread and butter accounting work, then, you know, the chargeable hour might not be that important. But when you start um, being more of that trusted advisor type of person, then, you know, you're constantly involved with your clients. You're spending, you know, a few hours here, a few hours there, um, and it might happen on a weekly or sometimes daily basis, depending on on what, what they're going through. So, um, you know, it's, it becomes difficult to measure the contribution you're making to a client if you're actually ditching the, the chargeable hour. So, you know, that's just an example of of that, you know, expert slash guru mentality where, you know, di unchain yourself, don't... Uh, you know, don't be burdened by the timesheet and go off and do things and just bill people what you think it's worth. And I just don't think that works. Um, and it certainly wouldn't work in in many practices, despite, you know, what people say. So, again, that's just an example of um, something sounding good on paper. You know, it allows people to provide their, their expert commentary, but it really doesn't apply in the real world. And, you know, that that's what I wanted to talk about today. Um, you know, regardless, again, some of these examples have been specific to the accounting world, but if you are, uh, regardless of the business you're in, 
Um, don't feel like you need to listen to the experts. I guess that's my takeaway. Um, they have good ideas. It might challenge some of the traditional thinking, um, get you out of your, your box, so to speak. And, um, but the fact that some of these things are floating out there, some of these ideas might have interesting elements to them. Just because you're not adopting them, don't feel like you're a dinosaur in any way. Um, you know, some of, the, some of the practices that you've been involved in, some of the practices we've been involved in, have been around for a long time. And they've been around for a long time because they work. And, um, you know, it's great to incorporate or at least look at new ideas. But uh, just because someone on LinkedIn says you've got to do it doesn't mean you've got to do it. Thank you.